Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Swiftly moving and richly detailed. One of the most dramatic spy stories of the Cold War. Now in our next segment, we're going to discuss a tremendous book. One of the best spy books I've ever read. It is the true story of the most daring allied operation of the Cold War. The successful construction in the early 1950s of a tunnel into East Berlin to tap and record KGB and Soviet military communications. And here to talk to us about it is the author of Betrayal in Berlin, Steve Vogel. Steve, welcome. Hey, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, man, I have to admit, uh, when I was reading through the press kit on this one, this thing would be incredibly interesting, not only to myself, but uh, several members of my family, because uh, we share that in common. We're both we're both sons of people of the pickle factory. And uh, anytime you know somebody that's worked in and around the intelligence services, it's interesting because you know very little about them or their service, rather. And uh, before we dive into the book, share with me why this touches home and why writing this book really spoke to your heart. Yeah, well, my my dad was uh, uh, stationed in Berlin as a CIA officer in the uh, in the 1950s, and uh, I ended up uh, being born there in in uh, 1960, which was a little bit too late for the uh, the Berlin Tunnel, but uh, uh, on time, in fact, in advance of the Berlin Wall, which was was built about a year after I was born. No coincidence, my my dad used to say, but um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, I didn't, of course, know then, and I didn't know for a long time until I was uh, in high school uh, that he actually worked for the the CIA. And uh, you know, like a lot of kids of uh, CIA officers, I, I didn't know really anything about what he did because it was it was undercover work, and he died a long time ago, so I never had a chance to to talk to him about that that stuff. Uh, but uh, did learn uh, over the years bits and pieces from from some of his friends and colleagues, and who uh, uh, stayed very close to our family. So I um, I just decided, as a journalist, I wanted to find out more about what was going on uh, back in the the heyday of the Cold War in Berlin. Indeed, and not just a journalist, but you've worked for the Washington Post. You've covered the fall of the Berlin Wall, and actually you uh, were there for several years covering the follow-up to uh, the fall of the wall. But the book Betrayal in Berlin is set in the 1950s, and it really is at this this dangerous, almost uh, nervous moment between us and the Soviet Union. And uh, I'll just kind of paraphrase here before I let you take over, but the code name Operation Gold... Uh, was a wildly audacious CIA plan to construct a tunnel beneath the wall to East Berlin to uh, intercept Soviet communications. I got to say that, the, you know, we were at a time in America and global politics when, like, the, the, the world was tense and we were almost fearing its inevitable end with, with weapons and nukes and all this stuff. Share with me where we begin with betrayal in Berlin. Yeah, I mean, this was kind of a uniquely vulnerable time, I think, in in American history. I mean, we of course come out of World War II as the, you know, the kings of the world, and uh, you know, had the sole uh, atomic capability. But uh, 
the Soviets uh, had stolen some of the secrets of the Manhattan Project and exploded their own weapon in 1949. And a few years later, they had a hydrogen bomb as well. Uh, they also had a, a massive force, uh, conventional army force that was uh, in Eastern Europe, in East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, that was you know on a war footing, um, ready to, to go into Western Europe if it came to that. And we didn't have any of the, the types of intelligence, really, that we think of today. I mean, this was uh, the U-2 was not yet available. We didn't have uh, that overhead surveillance. Plus, we had, of course, no satellites. Um, we didn't even have much in the way of um, human spies behind the Iron Curtain because uh, it had been so difficult uh, in the, you know, the police states that existed in, in uh, the Soviet Union in particular, but also East Germany, um, getting agents um, set up back there who weren't quickly captured. So we were more or less blind as to what the, the Soviets might, uh, might intend. And uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was uh, president, uh, really feared a, a, a nuclear Pearl Harbor might happen. Now, as we took steps to remedy that, and we really wanted to get to know what was going on behind the Iron Curtain, we wanted to track and see what our new nemesis was up to. Your story just documents so many different angles of this tunnel. But essentially, a tunnel was being built, and there was a key player in this whole thing that was an agent that turned on us who is British. Um, share with us a little bit of that storyline. Sure, yeah. Uh, well, this, this tunnel was... Um you know the the answer to the to the problem. Basically, they came up with this idea of uh, digging a tunnel from the American sector in Berlin into the Soviet sector and uh, tapping into the Soviet Red Army communication lines that that ran pretty close to the uh, the American sector border. Now, um, you know, at this time, this is before the wall, so I mean, there was more or less free access back and forth across the sector. So Berlin was a big espionage center. But the, um, the, the tunnel was going to uh, intercept these three large trunk cables that carried a massive amount of uh, Red Army and also some KGB uh, traffic. Um, and it, it seemed like uh, we needed to work with the British on this uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, partly, they, they had done uh, some, a series of smaller tunnels in Vienna and really had a, the technical expertise that we lacked. Um, plus, the, the, the British were very interested in doing their own tunnel, and uh, so the CIA and uh, MI6, or the, the British Secret in Intelligence Service, um, as it was known, ag agreed to work together on this. And this was such a close-hold uh, project that it was really only a handful of people in the CIA and in the, the British uh, SIS that, that knew about this. And George Blake, a fascinating guy, uh, as you allude to, he um, he was uh, actually uh, uh, someone who had uh, been in the Dutch resistance during World War II as a young uh, uh, courier for the Dutch resistance. Uh, his mother was Dutch. His father had fought for the British Army in World War One and uh, uh, gained uh, British citizenship. He was uh, from Turkey originally. But uh, Blake, uh, um, after... Uh, fearing arrest by the Nazis, had escaped all the way across Europe, you know, across the snowy Pyrenees Mountains and into uh, to get to England. And he's recruited by the British uh, intelligence uh, because, they, you know, he speaks lots of languages. He's pretty adept uh, working uh, 
behind enemy lines, that, that sort of thing. And uh, he uh, ends up getting sent to Korea just before the Korean War breaks out. And he's taken prisoner along with uh, uh, a number of other British and American diplomats, journalists, uh, missionaries. And he survived some very brutal treatment, uh, particularly early on, this death march, uh, where a number of American GIs uh, died due, due to the brutal conditions that they were being subjected to. Hmm. Um, and But during that time, Blake decides uh, that he's, uh, he's changing sides. Um, he uh, decides to, to approach... Uh, the Soviets, you know, via the North Koreans and, and make an offer of, of espionage. And he called it an ideological conversion. Uh, and whatever the reason, the, the net result was that when Blake uh, came back after his release uh, from Korea in 1953, he was put into a highly sensitive position um, with SIS, which uh, made him one of the very few uh, handful of people who knew about this tunnel. So the roots of the double agent, or the roots of Blake there, he actually joined the Soviets while he was being held prisoner. And, and, and I read in another interview that you had done, uh, you said that, that Blake was quoted as saying, if people spied for their principle, those are the really dangerous kind. Um, people that spy for money are really rather shallow. But the, but the people that spied for principle are the, mm-hmm. you know, the ones that can really do some damage. Do you think yeah. he had an ideological principle that he favored communism, or was it just something to get him out of that torturous situation in North Korea, and he was willing to join any team to just get yeah. out of Korea? We'll never know for certain. Um, I uh, personally, um, and and many others, uh, including actually the judge who ended up sentencing him uh, years later to prison, um, uh, believe that it was ideological. There's really no evidence... Uh, otherwise, there's some speculation, um, but uh, it, it seems that um, you know he he had uh, some. Even though he was raised as a you know as someone who hated communism, uh, he uh, began seeing things. He was, uh, he spent a few years as a as a child in Egypt. He saw the the great disparities in wealth there. Um, his um, some of the people he was in contact with it when he was held prisoner. Uh, you know, had had some very, uh, I guess, deep conversations about uh, the appeals of Marxism to the uh, to the hungry of the world. I, I think um, fundamentally, uh, Blake was would, didn't necessarily believe in you know the the Western um, approach to uh, to communism. He thought uh, we should be working more closely, trying to to help. Uh, some of the uh, the less fortunate in the world. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of people say that was complete hokey, um, and maybe he did it to, to save his life. But uh, as I say, we'll never know for certain. Well, we're going to get to something in just a moment that is actually mind-blowing because you met the man. But before we get there, um, fast forward from the POW camp in the Korean War, and then, of course, he takes this position somehow, some way, uh, as the Soviets led him to safety with the British. And there he is, a high-ranking officer. And explain to me kind of how he's now connected to this tunnel project, because it wasn't immediately known what he had done, right? No. Um, so he comes back um, in uh, April of 1953 back to England. And that, this is just as the tunnel project is kind of kicking into into high gear. And 
he is assigned to this special new section in uh, the British uh, Secret Intelligence Service. Uh, it's called Section Y, type top secret uh, little endeavor that was uh, in charge of um, tunnel type operations where the, the British were trying to, to exploit electronic uh, surveillance, you know, tapping lines. And this was this was something that uh, they were trying to do on a larger scale. So by virtue of that assignment, he ends up going to a meeting uh, with the CIA, with Bill Harvey, who was, uh, you know, one of the, the principal leaders on the American side in, um, with the CIA on this tunnel. And, you know, he's the guy at this meeting taking notes. Um, and at the same time that he's he's holding this position, he's, he's holding regular meetings with a KGB contact in London. So he's able early on to to alert the KGB to to what the Americans and British are planning. Amazing. So then years go by, and of course, um, you know, we deem this tunnel operation as a huge success in America, kind of wins back some cred for the CIA. Everybody's like, yay, look at us taking it to the Russians. We're still, you know, the biggest, you know, the biggest, baddest force ever been. And then it comes to light that they'd known all along that we were making that tunnel because of Blake. Yeah, I mean, he had um, alerted the KGB about it before the tunnel was even built. So uh, there's a real irony here. Um, and this presented the KGB with a huge dilemma because Blake was proving himself so valuable as a spy, you know, in a very sensitive position in uh, British intelligence. And so few people knew about this tunnel that the the KGB, and when we say the KGB, we're talking about, you know, three or four people at the KGB, very senior people, knew about this tunnel, but they didn't want to do anything that was going to jeopardize Blake. So they made the decision not to do anything. In other words, their their feeling was, okay, these are the, the Red Army's lines. They're not so much really our KGB lines. And they decide to, you know, not do anything to, to block the tunnel. And they don't do anything other than issue some oblique uh, warnings to uh, the senior Red Red Army commanders that, hey, by the way, you might want to watch your telephone security. But the, the amount of the volume of material that was going through these, these lines is, is astonishing. Thousands and thousands of calls every day, teletype communications from the, the lowest clerks uh, to the, the highest, uh, the, the commander of all uh, Soviet forces in Germany, um, who's, who's in charge of these 400,000 troops that are that are based there, they're having their calls intercepted, and they're oblivious to the fact. And the uh, you know there's speculation later that oh well this, you know the Soviets must have uh, just thrown a bunch of disinformation uh, on those lines. It would have been impossible to um, you know put some disinformation in there because so many of the calls would have been legitimate information. They couldn't fake, you know, 400,000 calls that it quickly would have been uh, uh, discovered as being, you know, something that had been planted, you know, and in in the end, the, the KGB was afraid to do anything to jeopardize Blake. So in a way, we actually both kind of won something here. We got some valuable intelligence by listening to them and being able to create the tunnel. And they actually had a win because they were able to put a mole in the entire operation uh, that, you know, we were so blind to for years. I mean, it didn't even come out until the 60s that uh, 
Blake had turned on us and had given up the tunnel very early on. Uh, you'd done incredible research for this. Uh, talk to me about wh- what ends of the earth you had to go to to uncover all these documents and the things that contribute to the book Betrayal in Berlin. You know, a lot of the research was, was uh, done here in the U.S., and including uh, I found some of the Army, U.S. Army Corps of Engineer officers who were in charge of this project who never told their story. And, you know, so I traveled around uh, uh, interviewing some of these guys, went out to Tennessee to talk to one of the captains in charge of the, the project. A lot of information that was from the CIA, some of the records they'd released in recent years and other stuff uh, obtained through uh, Freedom of Information Act uh, requests. I also went, uh, of course, overseas to uh, Britain, where a number of records existed, including Blake's um, trial record held at the Imperial War Museum and uh, other records at the National Archives in, in um, Kew, outside of London. And I, I was able to find uh, a lot of the CIA officers and uh, British intelligence officers who were involved. And, you know, one of the most legendary was a gentleman named Hugh Montgomery, who was in the CIA for f- some 50 years, only uh, died recently. And uh, he was more or less the number two guy for Bill Harvey on the tunnel in Berlin, and uh, he had some amazing details. And some of the uh, uh, communication engineers and uh, others who were involved in translating, you know, who were sitting there in this big American warehouse that they built across from the um, where, where the tunnel was was tapping the lines, and that's where they had all the these 150 tape recorders running, just the constant stream of, of calls being recorded and uh, they were listening to them live oftentimes to to try to find any sign of a, a, a Soviet attack or, or any sign that the, the Soviets had learned about this tunnel. Um, I also uh, spoke to George Blake, uh, didn't uh, wasn't able to meet with him personally, uh, but uh, spoke to him twice. I went out to Moscow to his dacha uh, where, where he he lives outside of Moscow. Uh, he was ill at that time, so I, I couldn't meet with him, but uh, spoke to him uh, on the phone. We talked about the tunnel. He, of course, uh, had this spectacular escape from uh, prison in London in 1966 and made his way to to Moscow eventually and has been living there ever since. So let me just a- Let me just click pause real quick and say you actually found Blake and got him to tell you more about his story, about how he escaped from prison and then ended up living in Moscow all these years. You found the original Soviet mole and spoke with him. Yeah, um, it was... Uh, <laughs> Tremendous. Um, it, it was uh, exciting. I mean, it, he's uh, someone who's uh, pretty mild-mannered and pleasant uh to speak with, but I think that's one of the things that made him very dangerous as a as a mole because people couldn't fathom him being a spy. He wasn't, you know, some brash guy. He wasn't like, say, Kim Philby, um, who, you know, later a lot of people thought, oh yeah, okay, I can see that. You know, Blake was was someone they uh, that the British thought was above suspicion, and so when they were hunting for a mole, they they just didn't think it could be him uh, initially. Yeah, so that that was uh, an interesting experience talking to him. Mm. He's 96 years old now and uh, not in the the best health, but uh, you know he's uh, he's the only one of the Soviet, uh, the British traders who uh, is still living. You know, all the others, Donald McLean and Kim Philby, Guy Burgess, and all those guys have uh, uh, long since died. But uh, you know, Blake is is still there at 96. 
this story was given to you or was researched and details given to you by by several people, some of which you've mentioned, uh, Hugh Montgomery, uh, various other people, uh, linguists and other engineers that worked on the project. Uh, they were all in their 80s or 90s and have since passed away since you were able to document their interviews. So uh, yep. tremendous research that you kind of got on their I don't want to say deathbed, but but in their last years, they shared with you. Why do you think they did that? Do you think this was just something that they wanted to get off their chest or? Yeah, I think in a lot of cases, I mean, they they had felt uh, I mean, it was classified operation um, still until um, really about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Um, And so they didn't you know, they felt they weren't allowed to. And I think. now they felt like this might be their last chance to, you know, tell the real story about what had happened and, uh, you know, what they did. Um, I don't think any of these guys were really seeking glory. I mean, you don't really do that uh, if you go to work for the CIA because almost everything you do is, is going to be <laughs> totally cloaked in uh, anonymity. But, um, you know, they, they kind of just wanted to set the record straight and, and uh, you know, leave the best record they could at this point for history. Well, it's an amazing story. I mean, it would make an even more amazing movie. I could see this thing being a silver screen blockbuster and, uh, you know, uh, it's part Jason Bourne, part uh, just, you know, really incredible period piece from one of the most nervous moments in our history. But it's not just about history. And in fact, the day and age we live in today, you've said in so many words, um, is very similar. Talk to me about why this is relevant, especially today, considering where we are. Yeah, um, well, I mean, of course, uh, with with all the, the talk of uh, Russia and Russian intelligence and, and election meddling, you know, a lot of uh, what this was about was um, trying to win the hearts and minds of or undermine the the other side in terms of uh, you know the Russians were always kind of interested in undermining democracy that was a lot of uh, what what they were doing what the KGB was up to in in Berlin in those years and one of the things that they tried to do with the tunnel once once they exposed it which was after uh, nearly a year of um, operation they uh, they made this huge press propaganda thing out of it you know they called in every reporter in berlin they they took them down in the tunnel they you know use this to to make the case that ah the americans they're they they're only using berlin to uh for an as a nest of spies you know they're they're completely uh uncaring about uh, about the german people they're just using uh, berlin as a base to to spy and this is another reason why the the allies should be thrown out of berlin uh, this was of course a an important goal of uh, the Soviets. Berlin was was more or less a weak point for them. This was the one place that the Western Allies still had a foothold behind the the Iron Curtain. If uh, if the U.S. was forced to uh, withdraw its forces from from Berlin, that we would have lost. You know, not only this beacon of democracy, Berlin, this, this island in, in the midst of East Germany, but we would have lost one of our most important bases for for conducting espionage. So, you know. Partly, what the Soviets were saying is right. We we, we did need Berlin as a uh, as a, a base for espionage, but it was also much more than that. It was also, you know, the the place where the flag of democracy was was flying um, most notably, and that's why Berlin was such a focal point for the Cold War, and and why you ultimately had the the wall being built because the Soviets 
failed to use the tunnel as a, as a way to get force out the, the Western allies. So in the end, they, they built a wall, but that ultimately leads to the collapse of the East German state and uh, undermines the, the Soviet Union, which uh, itself falls apart two years later. And as we've seen the wall fall apart, we've seen Berlin change, we've seen all these dynamics change over the successive decades. One thing maybe hasn't changed, and, and, and this is where maybe I'd like you to kind of spitball with me here, but is the Cold War still in effect? I, all the news about Russian meddling and all the news about, you know, social media and how, you know, we're kind of at war on a different level. But are we, in fact, still battling and is there still a real danger that uh, the men and women in the intelligence industry are facing every day? Well, I mean, in in a lot of ways, yes, it did not. You know, this this Cold War is... Uh, you know, what's going on today is a continuation of uh, what was going on 40, 50, 60 years ago. I mean, it's really, it's, it's a new Cold War, I, I think, is a more accurate way to, to put it. And um, obviously, it's not uh, between so much ideologies, but um, it's more of a, you know, the Russians are, of course, they are trying to undermine democracy uh, in, in Western Europe through you know, what they've done in, in uh, elections in all through the, the most recent European Union elections. There was a, a lot of meddling going on. They're also trying, of course, to undermine our elections in the United States. From from that standpoint, yeah, this is, I think, a very dangerous period. I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot of faith in uh, democracy being undermined. Uh, uh, when you when people don't have faith in their elections, when they don't have faith that uh, that uh, their leaders are, are the people that you know, the, the people have chosen to, to represent them. It, it really, it's a threat to, uh, I think, uh, our country and, and to uh, Western democracy in general. I guess as a military veteran myself, I look at it through that kind of lens, and I suspect that we are fighting this Cold War with uh, drone technology in remote parts of the earth, and uh, we are fighting it with cyber technology, and there's people in computer technological centers uh, deep within a mountain somewhere that are actually watching real-time internet servers and chatter on the dark web and all these things that are adding up to like Russian intervention. And it makes me question what I'm actually seeing in the news at times. Do you think some of what we're seeing now, and this is completely speculative, but the stories of uh, President Trump and the Ukraine and all these things, are these all facets of what could be considered a greater intelligence war that's playing out in the headlines of major newspapers and news networks across the country? Um, well, clearly, the intelligence services on, on both sides are, are, you know, play a key role in, in the stories we're, we're seeing. So, uh, yeah, very much so. Um, this is uh, an intelligence battle that, that's going on, and we're, we're uh, yeah, we see that in the headlines almost every day. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the tunnel, it's interesting, uh, and another aspect where the, the tunnel was kind of a precursor for some of the things that we see today is, you know, we, we, we live in this era now of, of mass surveillance, NSA and, you know, other other agencies. And in a way that the tunnel was was kind of this early attempt at mass surveillance. You know, they, they weren't just tapping a couple of, of lines of, you know, you know, this general or that clerk. They were tapping everybody's <laughs> conversations. And uh, I think that that has uh, uh, set the stage for where we are today, where, you know, communications all around the world are being intercepted. And we know our intelligence services know what's what's being said in conversations between the leaders of different countries. Um, I think that that's playing on, on the stories today because, uh, you know, <laughs> 
don't don't assume that what you're saying isn't being heard somewhere. The danger of faulty assumptions. It's actually a quote from you that I've taken from another interview as well. And uh, yeah, you, you've definitely nailed it. Are there moments when you work at a huge news organization like the Washington Post or something? Are there moments that reporters get leads or people that are on the defense beat or people that are on the international beat stationed somewhere else? Are there sometimes leads that are given to them by intelligence communities? Oh, I, I think that is happening. Um, I think uh, certainly, I mean, that that is something that, uh, you know, Russian intelligence has tried to do and, and not just targeting journalists, but, you know, people in general, because, you know, nowadays with social media, you can just go around the news organizations and, you know, put things out there on Facebook or Twitter uh, that end up getting, you know, as much or, or if not more circulation that, than what you see on the so-called, you know, mass mass media, legitimate uh, media organization. So, yeah, I think uh, going back to certainly uh, in the 50s and uh, the, the time I write about, uh, there was certainly efforts by the KGB to plant stories, you know, to kind of cultivate journalists and, and try to get false narratives out there. And, you know, that's one of the really tricky things uh, for any reporter is to you have to figure out where this information is coming from. You, you of course, can't just take it at face value. But, you know, if things are if information is being doctored, it becomes a, a very, very tricky and you know potentially dangerous route that you, you can go down. What's old is new again. That's uh, just an amazing story. Steve Vogel, the book is Betrayal in Berlin, the true story of the Cold War's most audacious espionage operation. A tunnel underground in Berlin and a British traitor that you actually tracked down some 50 years later. Uh, great stuff, Steve. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I look forward to uh, talking to you again sometime. Come back and be a guest. I, I could just talk more about conspiracy theories and espionage. Uh, uh, espionage and the intelligence community in the world we live in today. I could talk about it all day with you. Yeah, likewise. I really enjoyed it, Phil. It's a great conversation. Happy to do it again sometime. Steve Vogel, Betrayal in Berlin. The book is on shelves everywhere you find books. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.